to be looking um, into God's Word now for uh, a little while. Um, as you may realize that during the summer time, we, we kind of leave our regular teaching uh, program and different speakers, some of them are guests, some are people who uh, preach occasionally. Uh, we've asked them the briefest, look, bring something that God's put on your heart that you want to share uh, uh, and, and, and lead us in, in our kind of learning together from God's word. And um, I'm kind of kicking it off uh, this morning. And the thing I want us just to share with us it's on the theme of this, uh, how not to lose your faith. Okay, well, that's a strange one you may think. I don't know whether you've noticed, but it is a bit of a thing uh, at the moment. I was reading some stuff during the week. You know, that, that well-known uh, Christian leaders, Christian pastors, uh, and others seem to be giving up on what they used to believe. Uh, sometimes it's to do with, if you want, you know, orthodox Christianity, if you li- like, or Bible-based truth. Um, sometimes it's absolutely everything. That they, they stop, they deconvert. <clears throat> pardon me. There's a bit of a, a thing going on about deconstructing your faith. Uh, I read a magazine a few months ago where, the, a Christian magazine, where the whole, you know, that was the theme of the whole magazine, was trying to explore what's going on as different people are trying to do this. And this last, uh, last week or the week before, a uh, very famous pastor uh, uh, in the United States, a man called Joshua Harris, uh, even made it into the Guardian because he he'd been a very famous author. He was the pastor of a huge megachurch, and and uh, he he basically uh, put on his Instagram account that actually he's uh, not only left his wife, but he's also uh, given up his Christian faith completely. And we have other figures like uh, Rob Bell and others who who have st- who started in one place and for one reason or another have kind of come out and said, well, I'm no longer following Christ in quite the way that I did before. So what's happening? This week I read a blog based on Joshua Harris's experience that Billy Kennedy in our own city wrote, responding to it, asking the question, why is it that this happens? And he gives seven reasons why pastors might lose their faith. And it's on the Premier Christianity website. Uh, he actually Facebooked uh, uh, and, and asked people to answer the question, and he had about 200 answers and, and wrote the blog out of the answers that he was given. It's very interesting. You can read it if you want to. Uh, but maybe some of us are in that position as well, or, or thinking, well, I'm just not sure. How am I going to keep on going as a Christian? And I want us to look at three people in the Bible who were almost at that point of deconstructing everything, of losing everything uh, that they believed, but actually didn't. And to find out what we can learn from that, and what we can learn if we're to stay strong as believers in Jesus and and hold on to the truth of the Bible. And the first one I'd like us to meet is a man called Asaph. He's in the Old Testament. Uh, You can find him in the book of Psalms and other places, but uh, Asaph was around at the time of King David. So we're talking about uh, 3,000 years ago, 1,000 BC. So it's not a recent problem. And Asaph, we know, was uh, a gifted musician. He was a worship leader. He was one of the, the chief worship leaders. That's why he ends up, there are Psalms by Asaph in the Bible. And we're going to be having a, a look at one of them in a moment or two. 
And he saw great things happen. He saw the Ark of the Covenant that had been captured by the Philistines be, be brought miraculously back to, to Israel again and then into the temple, not the temple, into Jerusalem before the temple was built. And actually Asaph was given the job of being the chief, uh, one of the chief musicians in the, the worship and praise of God when the Ark of the Covenant came back into uh, Jerusalem. So he was a key guy. He was in charge of singing and rhythm. <laughs> and you can find about him in 1 Chronicles 15 and especially chapter 16. So he was a really key leader. And we're going to read one of the things he wrote. And as we do so, let's ask ourselves, well, what happened to Asaph? Why and how did he come back from it? And see what we can learn. We're not going to spend a lot of time in these places. I'm going quite fast. I was going to do that anyway, so don't think I'm doing that just because of the time. Uh, but we've, we're just going to kind of dip into it. Psalm 73, it's on page 586. And as we read it, uh, think about those questions. What happened to Asaph? Why did it happen? How did he get back? Here it is, verse 1, page 586. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, the people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. And they say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on, amassing wealth. Surely in vain, I have kept my heart pure. In vain, he says, I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. All day long, I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I'd spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved, my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Now, this is a, a you know, 1000 BC document. There's lots we could say about it. But I just want to just kind of go through it a little bit. What's happened to him? He says he's almost slept. Have you ever had one of those things where you've nearly lost your footing? It tends to happen to me every time it's icy or snowy. You know, you kind of slip and you think you're going to go. 
and then you don't. I was up a ladder once, don't like ladders since then actually. It's in a building not as big as this, probably half the height, a little chapel type place. I was helping someone rig lights for a video we were making and um, I was up the ladder, it was against the kind of metal A-frame. I reached to put the light and as I reached I, I went back and I could feel the, the ladder going back and I kind of suspended, but it seemed like a long time, it wasn't very long, and then it went forward again. And my, my, my legs turned to jelly and I came down the ladder. You know that feeling? Whoa. It was in Colchester, if any of you are interested. It actually happened. It's that experience. Asaph said, that nearly happened to me. That happened to me. I nearly gave up my faith. And he gives the reason. What other reasons there? He just could not cope with the injustice of bad people doing well. You see, Asaph had this simple Old Testament worldview where the, the promises God gave in the law, he thought, seemed to him to say that good people just don't get clobbered. If you do what God wants, you'll be okay. And that bad people will be clobbered by God if they don't do the right thing. And it was an intellectual problem at one level. But it was also a personal problem. You look at verse 13 and 14. While all the bad people were having a great time, how's Asaph getting on? The worship leader, the one in front of the Ark of the Covenant, the one who's top man in God's kind of worship thing. He's having a terrible time. He's suffering. Personal, intellectual problems and personal suffering comes into his life and he wobbles. And maybe we know what that's like. We have questions about what God does or doesn't do. Why it's not like we think it should be. Or it's not fair. Or we have personal suffering. And these things can make us wobble. And Asaph tells us, it says in verse 16, he said he was troubled deeply. He tried to understand it, but he couldn't. But something kept him from falling away. Something helped him. What was it? Verse 17, he worshipped. He entered the sanctuary. That was where he worshipped God. And he understood something. He's open to how his heart had been affected. How he'd been grieved and embittered. But in verses 21 to 22, he says, look, I was like that. I was stupid. I missed something really key. But he goes on to say that God was with him through it all. You see, it's like Asaph gets back to the basics of his calling. For him, it's worship. He's a worship leader. That's what God has given him to do. And he says, I've got back to that. And and okay, I haven't got the answers, but I see things a bit more clearly. I've seen God again. He realizes that God's presence is with him. His heart is God's again, verse 26. And he takes a decision to be with God, even with his questions, even with his suffering and his incomplete picture. Much more we could say, but that's Asaph, the first person. What about the next person I want to think about? Well, that was Peter, the Apostle Peter. We know his story, do we? He lost his faith almost. For very different reasons. Now, Peter, like Asaph, was a key bloke. He was like the leader of the disciples. Jesus was so impressed with uh, Peter. He, his name was Simon, so he called him Rocky. He said, look, you're like a rock. You're gonna, Peter means rock. 
So I'm going to call you Rocky from now on. I mean, that was a pretty kind of, uh, uh, you know, a, a foundational kind of, what's the word, a, a, a kind of commitment, uh, a positive thing that Jesus sees in Peter. And that's Jesus, the way he saw him. So he's the keenest. He's the most enthusiastic. He's the rock man. But when Jesus is on trial, and, and Peter, remember, is in the gar outside uh, where Jesus was on trial, sitting by a gate, sitting by a fire, warming his hands. Jesus is there being arrested, and, and, and three people come up to him and say, Hey, you, you know him, don't you? you? You talk like you're from up north. We got your accent there. You're like that. You're from Galilee. Don't you know him? Well, you know what happened, don't you? Jesus says, uh, Peter says, I don't know him. Don't, don't be ridiculous. And then, you know, the air goes blue as he calls down curses and he swears like the best of them. And, and, and then he realized he's let Jesus down. He's denied him three times. You know that story. How did Peter come back? Well, it's in John 21. And I don't know whether I've got time to read it, but there it is. It's John, turn over to it anyone, anyway, and it's on page 1090. And you can read it later. But you know what happened. Peter, after the resurrection, he goes fishing with some of the other disciples. We read about it there. They, catch, they go out to catch some fish on the Sea of Galilee, just like they used to do in the old days. And just like the old days, they don't catch anything. So not that much has changed, really. And Jesus is on the shore, do you remember? And he says to them, hey, boys. Have you got any, got any fish? You shouldn't ask that to fishermen when they haven't got any. And they said, well, no. And he said, look, try, try the other side. And you know, they, you know the story. They pull in a great haul of fish. And they come to the shore. And Jesus uh, talks to Peter. Jesus has prepared his cold charcoal fire. There's fish cooking on it. And, and he gives Peter the chance to um, confess. He says to Peter three times around the charcoal fire, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Do you really love me? And Peter gets a chance to say yes three times in front of the other disciples. And then Jesus says to Peter, I've got another job for you to do, Peter. You know you used to catch fish, then I told you you're supposed to be catching people. I now want you to look after sheep. Not actual sheep, but my people, my sheep. That's the story. You can read it in John 21. How does Peter come back? He comes back to his original story because everything that happens then is connected to the first time he met Jesus. The fish. When he first met Jesus, there were no fish. Jesus said, uh, put, your, put your net in and there was a miraculous. It was exactly the same. Only the first time Peter says to Jesus, get away from me. I don't want to know you. You're too holy for me. But this time Peter jumps in the water to get to, back to Jesus as fast as possible. It's back to the original story again. And then he faces the fact that he did fail. So the charcoal fire. What, what, how, where did Peter deny Jesus around a charcoal fire? How many times did he say, I don't know him, I don't know if I knew him, I'd hate his gut, blah, blah, blah. How many times did that happen? Three times. So he's back to, to that failure again. He's open and he's honest about it. And he has the chance to say to Jesus that he loves him three times. He's given a fresh job to do. Now, when we fail, sometimes failure can be the reason we begin to drift away from God. And when that happens, let's get back to the beginning. 
Let's get back to our original story. Let's get back to the truth that Jesus rescued us. He died for us. That what we're celebrating in a minute, communion, this fundamental thing that Jesus has done for me. Let's be honest and open with him about our failure. Let's get loving him into the center of our life. Let's be willing for him to shape what happens next. That's an alternative to losing your faith. If it's to do with failure. One more person I want us to look at. And this is stretching it a bit. It's maybe someone who's perhaps not in danger of losing his faith quite. But someone that the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to. And uh, Paul's a bit concerned about this bloke. And he's saying, look, I'm a bit worried you're losing your glow. And the person is Timothy. And we read about him on page 1195, which is the letter that Paul writes to this man, Timothy. Timothy was a church leader. He worked with Paul. Now we're after the resurrection of Jesus. We're in the first, you know, probably 30 or 40 years after Jesus rose from the dead. And little Christian communities have sprung up around the, uh, the Middle East. And uh, one of them is in a place called Ephesus. And Timothy is uh, the leader uh, of that little community there. And the Apostle Paul, who's writing the letter, is the one who started the church there. And Timothy and Paul used to work together. And Paul's in prison, and he writes him a letter. In, ver- in chapter 1, verse 5, this is what he says. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That's the Apostle Paul speaking. So verse 6 tells us what Paul is worried about. He says to his friend Timothy, uh, the one who's in charge or, or leading, guiding this church in Ephesus, he says, fan into flame, rekindle the fire. I'm worried that your fire is going out, Timothy. It's getting a bit low. I wonder why that would be. What might cause that? Well, we can only speculate, but we do know if you read the rest of the book of Timothy... He had a really tough job. Do you know, some of the people in the church that Paul refers to in the letter, do you know what he calls them? Opponents. (laughs) Opponents. How about being the pastor of a church? You get a letter from someone who knows church really well, who's your, your kind of mentor, and he describes people in the church as your opponents. You might as well be boxing them in the ring. That's that's a tough gig, isn't it? That's not easy. And uh, there are people in the church who, who or within the wider community who were teaching stuff that wasn't right, wasn't true. 
It was not easy. Timothy's not the toughest of guys. He was, that's why I think he said, look, Paul's saying, don't be timid. That must have been a thing for him. It tells us in one of the letters to Timothy that his stomach, his, 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 he wasn't strong kind of physically. Paul says, look, don't just drink water. You need to drink wine because of your bad stomach, Timothy. He's a, a vulnerable guy. He's not, he's not old, but he's not young. I, sorry, he's, he's not an old guy. He's a young guy. Paul describes him as a youth. And there's references in the lesson to, to youthful desires or youthful lusts. Maybe he was struggling in, in areas because of you know, where he was at in his age and stage. And there were things that were hard for him. And what is Paul saying to Timothy? What's the way to turn around on the road to giving up? Again, did you notice there's a bit of a theme emerging here? Timothy is encouraged to go back to the beginnings of his Christian experience. How the Holy Spirit came into his life. How he knew God with him, in him personally. That Holy Spirit of power, love and self-discipline. These were things Timothy knew once and he can know them again. Paul encourages him to share in, in suffering for the gospel. There's a cause for him to be involved in. But then in those verses we read from verse 9 onwards... There's the gospel, the good news itself. And all it says there about what Jesus has done in destroying death, in bringing life to to light, to to enabling us to, to know God for ourselves. All those things are in the heart of the gospel. Jesus' death and resurrection, the holy life that he's called us to and will empower us in. Timothy knew that before, and he can know it again. So like Asaph and Peter, Timothy is taken back to the fundamental truth of God's word and of how God's story has become part of his story, so to speak. How that came into his life. And that comes into our lives when we say yes to the Lord Jesus, when we welcome him in, when the Holy Spirit comes and we receive the forgiveness that Jesus offered as we turn from sin and as we trust him because of what he's done on the cross. And if you haven't done that yet, well, can I just encourage you to to know that this morning even or to come back to that if you knew it once before. Because it's still in Timothy's life. It might be burning low, but it has not gone. It's there to burst into flames again. You see, one of the things I reckon, you may not agree with me, but what do you think? I think we're in danger of losing our faith when we forget something really important. And we read it in the last passage I want us to look at in Colossians chapter 2. That's on page 1183. And it's two verses. These two verses sit into a wider context. I was going to preach on the whole of this passage, but as I got this, this is really complicated. So I went in a different direction, and that's where I got, got to. But I just want to go to those two verses, verses 6 and 7. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. 
You see, Paul's writing this uh, letter because he wants the people in this church in Colossae, the place that it was written to, to follow Jesus and keep following him. He says in these earlier verses, I want you to go on right to the end. I want you to become mature in Jesus. I want you to finish the race. I don't want you to give up. So all he's doing in these verses is encouraging him in that direction. One of the things he says is this. As you receive Jesus as Lord, live that way. Never lose the original story of what he's done for you and your story with him and how this that he has done on the cross is now in your life or was, if you've kind of forgotten, if it's become some kind of amnesia thing. Remember that because we live on the basis we go forward on that. Sure, walk on. Go off into all kinds of ways. We, you know, obviously don't wander from the faith, but there are wild possibilities. There are difficult questions. There are challenging things. There are things that are yet to be understood. There are storms. But never lose this key basis. Hold on to it. I've got time quick. Very quickly. I used to visit a, a dear brother who was in our church. He, he died a few years ago, a man called Oscar Penhero. Remember Oscar? Oh, many of us know Oscar. He's with the Lord now. Now, one of the things is um, maybe other, John Hill used to visit him a lot. Uh, he's over there, John Hill, and others of us did. Oscar never forgot his testimony. He'd often be talking about how he met the Lord back in India when he was a fighter for the British army and all this kind of stuff. And it, was, and it wasn't particularly spectacular, but the thing, he never lost that awareness of what Jesus had done for him when he became a believer. And Oscar had many reasons. He had some tough things to deal with in his, his family and other things. You know, spending your whole life knocking on doors in Southampton isn't the easiest gig, is it? But he didn't lose his faith because he kind of held on to what, where he started. It says, as you were rooted in him, that idea can mean digging a foundation. It can mean the idea, you know, you put poles in the ground and then you, you, know, they, you fix them and then you build around them. It says, as you were rooted, so then build on that. It says, as you believe the truth, don't leave it behind. So does this mean then, we're on the final straight now, does this mean that we just dismiss questions or pretend that everything's okay or that life doesn't hurt or that, you know, a simple view on everything is the answer, you know, uh, Jesus wants me for a zombie or something, you know, someone I take my brain out when I become a Christian and I shut my ears to the culture and the questions and all of that. Does it mean that? No, it doesn't. But as we go through all of these things, and maybe we'll, well, we, I know we will be in the church going through some of these tough areas together, we need to keep a line fixed on what we do know. And what it means for you and for me to belong to Jesus, that he's rescued us and we have the spirit in our lives. This weekend is the 40th anniversary of a great tragedy. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Fastnet race. Yeah, Alistair remembers it. Anyone else remember it? I remember it. It was in 1979. We've been in the, in the city a year then. And it's a race of yachts that go out from cows 
It was in Cows Week, but this year it's the week before Cows Week. They leave Cows and they go all the way down through the English Channel, round to the Fastnet Rock down by uh, in the Irish Republic. Uh, they go around it and then they come back to Plymouth. And on that, the, the race 40 years ago, they sailed into the, the, the most horrendous, unexpected storm. And a number of the, the sailors were drowned. It was a tragedy. Actually, this week on South Today, they, they, were, they had a service of, of remembrance on the island this week, and they had survivors talking about what had happened. And one of the things they, they were said, the question was, well, how have things changed? And one of the, thing, one of the people said, well, actually, the, 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 the standards of equipment have increased. And one of the things he said is, it's absolutely crucial that people have lifelines and that they're strong, and that they hold. Because there were people who fell overboard off a yacht in a storm and weren't attached by any way back to the ship, and they were drowned, or their lifelines broke. Now, this is what we're talking about here. This that Jesus has done, hold on to it. It's our lifeline. Because I believe we lose our faith when we let go of the gospel truth that saved us, and just go after the doubts. Nothing wrong with pursuing the doubts and figuring it out, but don't let go of the gospel truth that saved us. Or we just go after the questions or the bits that we struggle with. We're losing our faith when we let go of Christ's love for us and our love for him. We're slipping when we forget our calling to serve him or when we no longer look for the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. We need to hold on to all of those things as we explore the difficulties or go through the storms why does it happen how do we get like that go back to asaph's honest comments he talks about his heart six times in psalm 73 the heart is mentioned and as we were thinking last week it's so easy for our hearts to be captured by something else or for us to give our hearts to something else We set our hearts on our wants, our ambitions, our loves. And it begins as a kind of simple idea swap in our heads. I shouldn't have to suffer like this. I shouldn't be in this situation. I deserve something else. This isn't what I signed up for. Let me read you a quote from a book I've been reading. It's a superb book. I highly recommend it. By a man called David Bennett. David is a a gay Christian who talks out of his story, of his struggles, and where he goes with that. This is a quote from his book. I'm reading it. My story, he says, is a testament to God's quiet revolution in my heart. But these principles, I pray, can be used as a manifesto for a revolution in yours. Love, I have come to learn, is not God. Flip that. God is love. The God revealed in Jesus Christ is the definition of love. This difference changes everything. We are caught up in arms greater than our own, feeling the possibility of being accepted not by our mirror, but by our maker. The cross is where that strange and holy God most clearly reveals his love. There he gave his very self 
so that the whole world could know him and enjoy the intimacy we were designed for and without which everything breaks down. Human romance and attempts at religion can never provide lasting meaning. Only God can. In that sense, the cross is God's intimate act of self-giving, his gentle way of critiquing our love of money, sex, self, romance, fame, and above all, power. These weaker loves, these idols we raise in our own image could never compare with his infinitely greater love. Jesus taught that both the worst sin and the most sacred worship originate from the same place, the heart. Think of that revolutionary concept. What does it mean? Simply that God's love should displace all others and occupy the primary space in our hearts. It is simply what we were made for. It's powerful stuff. The heart. See, Asaph, Peter, and Timothy all come back to that place. They found God's love again. They returned to their roots in who God had proved to be in their lives. They wobbled, but they didn't fall over. Now, none of the situations that prompted their crises changed. Asaph still suffered, whilst the rich and arrogant didn't. Peter couldn't undo his failure. Well, we still talk about it today. I mean, what's it going to be like for Peter in heaven? The first thing anyone's going to say, oh, I know you. You're the one who denied Jesus, aren't you? Well, maybe we wouldn't do that, would we? But you know what I mean? He, he still failed, but he went on. Timothy had to work in a tough church after Paul was executed because Paul, who wrote to Timothy, was executed quite soon after, we believe. Uh, kind of tradition or other history has it. After the letter. They faced the questions. They faced the pressure to deconstruct They lived with the tremors in their hearts and minds, but they were still attached or they got reattached to the lifeline anchored in Jesus. And so can we. Let's continue in worship and response.